The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 48, The Battle of Crecy. The modern town of Crécy-en-Pontieu lies just a few miles north of the Lower Somme Valley in the modern French region of Hauts-de-France, in the north of France. Historically, it was in the region of Picardy, which is recognised as an area where the Picard language, a Romance language closely related to modern French, was spoken. And this area of lingual influence also crossed the modern Belgian border, which also means that it is very closely related to the Walloon language and culture too. Little is known historically about this area of Europe up until Roman times, where this could have been close to or on the border between Celtic and Germanic cultures. When Julius Caesar discovered the region, he would be able to distinguish it from the bulk of those peoples of modern central France to whom he would refer to as Gauls. He would identify them as the Belgi, who would have cultural links to some of the peoples of the British Isles and be distinct from the Germanic tribes further to the north and the east. Caesar would recognise the Belgi as brave warriors who were much more remote and detached from modern society than most of the Gauls further south. And there is an argument that the Belgi, or certainly some of the people from this area, had a language distinct from Celtic and Germanic languages before the influence of Celtic cultures spread into the area. From the period when the Romans took control of the area, it would be referred to as Gallia Belgica, and it would find its culture gradually Romanised, but this would take many generations and initially some protection from the Romans against its neighbouring tribes in order to coerce the peoples into showing little resistance to the Romans. Germanic tribes would attack Gallia Belgica, despite it now being a Roman territory, but Germanic tribal attacks characterised the European-Roman borderlands in most cases, so we shouldn't be surprised that this was happening. It was during the later Roman centuries that we can see a reference to a Germanic peoples called the Franks, who emerged on the northeast borderlands of Gallia Belgica, and as the Romans became less able to garrison troops in the extremities of their vast empire, Gallia Belgica became less effectively defended against territorial expansion and invasion from Frankish tribes. The branch of the Franks that troubled the coastal area of Gallia Belgica were the Salian Franks, who eventually became settled in the lands of the modern south of the Netherlands. At the beginning of the 5th century, a significant event occurred that would change the state of northern Roman provinces. In the year 406, a large number of Germanic tribes crossed over the Rhine River from east to west, invading Roman territory. Although the Franks may have played a relatively small part in the invasions compared to the Vandals, for example, and although some of the Franks had been settled in Roman territory in order to help to defend it, the Franks in general would benefit hugely from the collapse of this Roman border. Over the course of the 5th century, Salian Franks would migrate into the lands of Picardy, bringing Germanic dominance to the region for the first time. It was from within this new territory of the Salian Franks that the Merovingian dynasty emanated, so we can argue that this is the birthplace of the modern country of France although a lot would need to happen before we can recognise a distinct national state that would exclusively become France, as we will discover. The most famous of the early Merovingian rulers was a man called Clovis, and he has become revered 
due to his successful amalgamation of all of the Frankish tribes to a peoples who existed under one rule and his incredible expansion from a humble territory in the area of today's battle to create a Frankish kingdom that covered much of northern France including Normandy, southwards to control much of the region of Aquitaine and then north and east to cover Belgium, Luxembourg and most of the Netherlands and then across towards the Black Forest of the west of modern Germany. Upon Clovis's death, the vast Frankish kingdom would be split between his sons, and the area of today's battle would have fallen into the northern fringes of the Frankish kingdom of Paris, ruled over by Schildeberg, and on its border with the Frankish kingdom of Soissons, ruled over by his brother Clotar. After Clotar's death, the kingdom of Soissons would expand westwards to dominate the northern coast of France, and this would in turn become the Frankish kingdom of Neustria. Neustria referred to the new lands that the Franks had expanded into under Clovis, and the Neustrians were often at odds with the Austrasians to their east. The Austrasians were also Frankish, and eventually Austrasia would subjugate Neustria in the 7th century to create the kingdom of Francia. Although due to the common Frankish identity of both the Neustrians and the Austrasians, the two entities would exist as political areas both when united under one ruler and when not. The Kingdom of France The Frankish kingdom created by Clovis is often cited as the beginnings of French culture. It can often be heard that Clovis was the first king of France. The reality is that the kingdom of the Franks underwent a number of changes before we can identify a political entity that would exclusively become France. And even then, under feudal law, it can be argued that some areas of what we would recognise as part of the modern country of France were not even subject to the French king in any way at all. Clovis was converted to Christianity at the end of the 5th century, which would mean that the Frankish kingdoms going forward from his lifetime would be Christian kingdoms. The Franks pushed the Visigoths southwards out of Aquitaine in order to establish a kingdom that would resemble the area of modern France before they would expand their influence eastwards from Aquitaine to subjugate the Burgundians who had also originated from the mass of Germanic tribes occupying Central Europe from the time of the Romans. The Frankish kingdom would be ruled by kings who would split their realms between their sons, thereby splitting the kingdom up and creating rivalries, which would often result in the strongest son reuniting the Frankish kingdoms again. During the 7th century, the power of the kings started to wane, and statesmen called the mayors of the palace would take control of the individual Frankish kingdoms, leaving the dynastic monarch to start becoming silent crown wearers. One of the more well-known mayors of the palace was a man called Charles Martel, who successfully repelled the invasion of Muslims from the south after the Muslims had conquered the kingdom of the Visigoths based in the Iberian Peninsula. Charles Martel would be highly respected as a national leader, but he would be acting on behalf of the ineffectual Merovingian dynasty kings of the Franks. Charles Martel would also have a professional relationship with the Pope and this enabled Charles's descendants to appeal to the Pope to recognise Charles Martel's descendants as the correct dynastic kings of France. So the Merovingians were out and the Carolingians were in. Charles Martel's grandson was named Charles in his honour but due to this grandson's achievements he would become known as Charlemagne which translates to Charles the Great. Charlemagne would expand the Frankish kingdom eastwards, controlling most of Central Europe. The Pope was so impressed with Charlemagne that he would crown him as the Holy Roman Emperor, which was a ceremonial role, recognising Charlemagne as the protector of the Roman Catholic Church. After Charlemagne's lifetime, his vast Frankish empire was split into three parts. The eastern part would be the origins of the German nation, while the western part would be the origins of the French nation. 
During the 10th century, the dominance of the Carolingian rulers of West Francia was being challenged by other dynasties. This resulted in the rise of the Capetians, who would rule France up until the eve of the period known as the Hundred Years' War, which was a time of heightened hostilities between France and England from the 14th century. The great-great-grandson of the first Capetian king, Hugh Capet, was known as Louis VI at the beginning of the 12th century. Louis VI is considered by some to be the strongest ruler of France since the time of Charlemagne some 300 years earlier. France was very much a land of feudal relationships with many powerful barons controlling various lands of France and not a lot of centralised control. Louis VI did a lot to try to regain a centralised control over French lands. This would also be a time of the proliferation of Gothic architecture which would become an important and influential architectural style in France and neighbouring countries during the remainder of the Middle Ages. The 12th century was also a time for the emergence of the Plantagenets who were a royal dynasty who controlled lands and territories within France and who would come to rule the nation of England. The important territory of Aquitaine was ruled by a duchess called Eleanor. Eleanor was originally married to the French king Louis VII but they separated and Eleanor then married the man who would quickly become the English king Henry II. This meant that England had too much influence over lands that were critical to the French and the tensions between the two nations would dominate the medieval history of both nations. After the lifetime of Henry II, the French would establish a stronger position against the English by expelling them from many of their continental lands and this would lead to the English becoming somewhat of a submissive entity to France during the 13th century. Meanwhile, the French nation would strengthen the integrity of its monarchy and politics. The Kingdom of England in the same way that we can refer to the migration of the Germanic tribes of the Franks as the embryonic stages of the nation of France, we can also refer to the migration of the Germanic tribes of the Angles, Jutes and Saxons as the earliest foundations of what would become the nation of England. As France's name is derived from the Franks, England's name is derived from the Angles. These Germanic peoples who migrated to the island of Great Britain, like the Franks, were Christianised from the first centuries of their settlement on the island. Like the earliest centuries of the Frankish kingdoms, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were a patchwork of kingdoms, but it seems that the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were less closely related to each other than the Frankish kingdoms were to each other, with there being independent dynasties ruling the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms individually. We know that the monarchs of the Frankish kingdoms were all members of the Merovingian family tree, in contrast. Frankish lands were being raided by the Vikings from Scandinavia during the later centuries of the first millennium, but the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms felt the Viking invasions to a much greater extent. It was when the Vikings started settling on Great Britain that many of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms capitulated, leaving the Kingdom of Wessex to prevent total conquest of the south of the entire island. The Wessexians would fight to reclaim the kingdoms lost to the Vikings, and this reconquest by Wessex created the nation-state that would be referred to as England. While this was going on, Vikings in northern France had reached an agreement with the West Francian king Charles III that they were to be allowed to settle the lands of northern France in a territory that would come to be called Normandy, named after the Norsemen. The English continued to have issues with Norse interference in their national politics and while this was going on, Normandy would establish itself as a duchy within France that operated with a great degree of autonomy. In 1066, the Normans crossed the English Channel and seized the English crown, deposing the existing Anglo-Saxon regime. 
The French language would become the language of the highest classes of English societies, while the peasantry still spoke the native tongue of English, which as a language had been carefully established since the reign of Alfred the Great at the end of the 9th century. The leader of the Norman invasion was William the Conqueror, who ruled England as King William I. After William's death, Normandy and England would be ruled separately by different sons of William, and in 1106, Henry of England defeated his elder brother, Robert of Normandy, which meant that England controlled Normandy now, as opposed to the other way round. A succession crisis followed the reign of King Henry of England, and it would be a grandson by his daughter and a son of Geoffrey Plantagenet that would inherit the throne of England and rule as the first Plantagenet king, King Henry II. The Plantagenets controlled territories under French rule, and this would excite tensions between England and France. King Henry's son, who ruled as King John in the early 13th century, would lose much of the Plantagenet lands within France, as King John became highly unpopular with his barons, and the barons would invite the son of the French king to invade England and depose John. John died quite suddenly, and so the English barons rejected the French invasion, instead favouring John's infant son, who would be crowned as King Henry III. Henry was forced to acknowledge that the remaining English territories in France were now under strict regulation. Henry's son, who ruled as King Edward I, was distracted by his desire to establish an overlordship on Scotland, so his business challenging the French was limited. Edward's son ruled England as King Edward II, and he would be married to Isabella, the daughter of the French King Philip IV. King Philip VI of France The man who would become King Philip VI of France was not supposed to become the King of France. He was born in 1293 when his uncle ruled France as King Philip IV. And King Philip IV already had a son and more sons were born while our Philip, who we can refer to as Philip of Valois at this stage, was an infant. So there were a lot of descendants of Philip IV that would take the throne before Philip of Valois would ever be considered. It is for that reason that Philip of Valois' young life is not very well documented. It would come to pass that all of the male direct descendants of King Philip IV had died out and just one surviving daughter was left, Isabella, who had been married to King Edward II of England. Isabella was not permitted to become the Queen of France because the French would insist upon only having kings. Isabella would have two sons by the now deceased Edward II and the eldest son was the teenage King of England ruling as Edward III. The French were not in any way excited by the prospect of having the King of England ruling France and so they looked towards Edward's cousin Philip of Valois as a more appropriate choice. Philip was a direct male descendant of King Philip III, and so when he was chosen to be king, he would be crowned King Philip VI of France, and he would be the first French monarch to belong to the Capetian House of Valois. Philip was in his mid-thirties when he became the king. The technicality by which the French barons determined that Philip should be allowed to become the king as opposed to Edward was that Edward's inheritance was through his mother, and that was excluded by law. However, you can imagine if Edward and Philip were in each other's positions, the barons would have found another way to justify Philip's election. Philip also had to wait until the widow of the previous king, Charles IV, had given birth to a child who would have been the new king had he not been born as a she. Philip then made it his business to summon Edward to France in order to pay homage to him for Edward's lands in France and initially Edward would be obedient. Philip's kingdom was much stronger than Edward's so Edward would have to play the submissive role initially but he was very wary of Philip's further intentions. Philip would provide refuge to the infant King David II of Scotland during the 1330s, an enemy of Edward. 
So then Edward would provide refuge for Robert III of Artois, a political enemy of Philip. So Philip confiscated Aquitaine from Edward, and this was something that Edward could not accept. King Edward III of England Edward grew up the son of the English king Edward II and his wife Isabella of France, the daughter of King Philip IV of France. Isabella became estranged from her husband, a very unpopular King Edward II, and she fled to France where she became acquainted with the English baron Roger Mortimer. Isabella and Mortimer successfully deposed Edward II and they would declare his son as the new King Edward III. But as a teenager, he would rely on Isabella and Mortimer to act as his regents. The big problem with this is that Mortimer would exploit his position for his own benefit and Edward was encouraged on the eve of his 18th birthday to act. Both Mortimer and Isabella were arrested. Isabella, the king's mother, was kept in a comfortable manner, somewhat under house arrest for the remainder of her life. Mortimer was hanged for treason. Edward would set about trying to stabilise the relationships between the monarchy, the barons and parliament, something that had been strained during the reign of his father. Edward recognised the pressures of the Scots and the French against his kingdom and he needed a strong but inclusive relationship with his subjects in order to generate the financial support required to defend England's interests. Edward tried to exercise his authority over Scotland following the death of arguably the greatest Scottish king, Robert the Bruce. Robert's son David became King David II of Scotland and Edward would move in to try to bully the Scottish kingdom, now being ruled by a child king. Young David would flee to France and Edward would be furious that the new French king, Philip VI, had granted David refuge. Especially as Edward believed that his claim to the French throne was stronger than Philip's as Edward was a grandson of King Philip IV of France, something that Philip VI wasn't. Edward had previously paid homage to King Philip VI of France for his lands in France, such as Aquitaine, but after the French had supported the anti-English old alliance with Scotland, Edward refused to pay homage to Philip, and so Philip confiscated Edward's lands and started mobilising a fleet ready for war with England. Despite England being financially inferior to France, Edward could not afford to ignore Philip's bold moves against him. Edward would prepare for military exchanges and declare himself as the true King of France. Prelude to the Battle Edward's plans were somewhat of a mystery to Philip, who had always had the upper hand over Edward. So, when Edward assembled a considerable force capable of causing huge problems for the French, it may have come as a bit of an unpleasant surprise. There could have been as many as a thousand ships that sailed across the English Channel from Portsmouth to Saint-Valo-Hugues in Normandy in July 1346. This kind of force was even larger than the one that Edward's ancestor, William the Conqueror, had amassed when he crossed the channel in the opposite direction almost 300 years previous, so it was little wonder that the French were surprised. Edward's army size could have been around 15,000, and Edward would conduct a chevauchee eastwards across northern France in the direction of Paris. This chevauchee would essentially be the systematic raiding, burning and pillaging of towns and villages, with one of the more notable sackings being that of the city of Caen, which offered the English a lot of valuable treasure with which to raise the morale of the army. The success of the English was a major concern for Philip, who blocked the path to Paris. This caused Edward to turn north towards the Somme River, and Philip would pursue Edward's army towards the coast. Conflict was now inevitable. So Edward crossed the Somme River at Blanchetac and prepared for battle. 
we have to take some educated guesses about some of the aspects of both armies as there can be some conflict within the sources. It does seem that the English army was split into three units. The central unit was commanded by King Edward III himself, while the other two were commanded by his son, Edward the Black Prince, and his first cousin, William de Buen, the first Earl of Northampton. While advancing, the Black Prince likely led the vanguard, but in formation on the battlefield, the Black Prince took the right flank. The French army arrived on the battlefield around midday. Their vanguard was predominantly mercenaries from Genoa, who were expert crossbowmen. The Genoese crossbowmen had a very highly respected reputation, so they were a great asset to the French army. Charles II, Count of Alençon, commanded the centre of the French army, while King Philip VI was in command of the rearguard. The English did not have crossbowmen, but instead they had longbowmen. Not as much in the way of a specialist manufacturing was needed to construct longbow equipment, but the difference in archer styles between the English army and the French army would prove to be significant. The numbers that made up the armies would have been difficult to state with accuracy, but we all too often see that the victors are more than happy to give overinflated army sizes for their opponents to make their victory seem more remarkable. However, we do need to stick with what sources do suggest without allowing our minds to run off with us. It does appear that the French army may have been twice the size of the English army. If 15,000 crossed the English Channel in early July, then numbers are likely to have been depleted by the end of August. It's just that we cannot be sure by how much, but certainly over half the English army would have made it to Cressy. The Battle of Cressy. It was the afternoon of the 26th of August 1346 when the French army located the English army and it seems that the English army was deliberately positioned in waiting for the French at a narrow passage which would prevent the larger French army from outflanking the English. Philip was reluctant to engage initially, but his knights were too keen and forced Philip's hand, so Philip deployed the famous Genoese crossbowmen to fire their bolts at the English army. There may have been two factors that may have played against the crossbowmen, although there is some degree of speculation. It could have been that the English positioned themselves on higher ground, which stunted the range of the crossbowmen's bolts, and it could have been that Rain was in the air, which would have moistened the strings of the crossbows, making them less effective. If this is correct, then it is feasible that the English longbowmen would have been able to replace their damp longbow strings with spare dry strings that they carried on their person. This would not have been possible with the complex crossbows, which required professional expertise and equipment to replace the strings. If the English did have the higher ground, then the range of their longbowmen would have been further, meaning that they could shower arrows more effectively over their French opponents than those being fired in the reverse direction. Even if neither of these facts are true, then it could have simply been the quicker difference in loading speed of the English longbowmen that could have made them more effective against the Genoese crossbowmen. Either way, the French had to pull away from their aggressive position to avoid losing numbers. It could also be true that the English longbowmen may not have had enough impact to penetrate the armoured French knights, even if they were successful at picking off the complacent Genoese crossbowmen, who may have seen it unnecessary to be shielded. We can suggest that the English used gunfire from small guns and ribaldis, which were an early form of cannon. They would have utilised these weapons to hold the French knights at bay while the longbowmen did their damage. So this is one of the earliest instances of gunfire in European military exchanges. The French knights that had stubbornly continued advancing on the English army may have been held at bay by the guns and cannons. Their horses may have been taken from under them by either gunfire or arrows, and those that did escape the English bombardment 
would have been met by a number of English men-at-arms, who were soldiers that in this particular case were dismounted from horses, and these men were not necessarily at the class of a knight. The English were also digging trenches and pits, while the battlefield in front of them was becoming a carpet of fallen bodies, both human and equine. So any continued attacks by French knights was becoming more and more difficult for them, due to these additional obstacles. The English were able to stand firm long into the evening and resist the temptation to pursue the French back down the slope. This meant that the English had to weather waves of repeated attacks by the knights, but the French were not successful at breaking through the English lines. The fighting went on long into the night and it is not clear how or why the French knights felt that they could have had any further success under the dark of night. Some reports state that the French knights continued their attempted attacks until after midnight. At the break of dawn, the English were ready to advance, but the battlefield was a blanket of dead bodies. The arrival of more French troops only prolonged the agony, and with the English advances, it is not clear how many more French troops were killed by close-quarters combat, longbow arrows, or simply by being crushed by a chaotic French retreat. The French casualties may have been as much as 4,000, with a report of there being over 2,000 heraldic coats taken by the English from the battlefield, and it is likely that most of them would have been worn by French nobles. The amount of French nobility who died at Cressy was highly alarming for the French, who were regarded as the military powerhouse of Europe. Among the dead were Charles II, Count of Alençon, and one of Philip's chief military commanders. The highly regarded John of Bohemia, who was a talismanic knight, also known as John the Blind due to losing his eyesight as a result of ophthalmia, or eye inflammation, was slain on the battlefield along with his guards. Other significant casualties of the battle were Louis I, Count of Flanders, Louis II, Count of Blois, and Rudolf, the Duke of Lorraine. As for King Philip VI, he was wounded, but he was able to escape the battlefield. Aftermath The events at Cressy shocked the international community. Nobody really imagined that the mighty French nation who had been bullying the English around since the reign of Edward III's father could possibly be beaten on their own soil by the English, who time and time again had had to hold back on their invasions due to financial constraints. The English had been very cunning. The French surely underestimated the English capabilities and walked into a battle that had been carefully set up by the English. The crossbow was envied as a weapon, with great mechanical skill applied to its manufacture. The Genoese crossbowmen had a great reputation across Europe. On this occasion, they had simply been outwitted by the English longbowmen, something that was unimaginable considering the simplicity of the creation and maintenance of the longbow by comparison. The success of the English longbowmen meant that they now were sought after mercenaries around Europe, something that had been the luxury of the Genoese crossbowmen too. King Edward III would now be looked upon as a genuinely capable military monarch in his own right, after beginning his life as a child pawn in a game of royal chess and spending the early years of his reign needing to show a submissive attitude towards the French king. He would move north following this famous victory and secure the port of Calais, something that would belong in English hands for the next two centuries. The French army had been so devastated by the English at Cressy that they were too weak to prevent the English acquisition of Calais. Confidence in the French crown under Philip VI was now at a very low point and Philip had to invest much time in ensuring that the French nobles and clergy were not about to turn on him. The Black Death would soon alter the priorities of everyone within France and survival took precedence over the question of the king's ability to rule. Philip died in 1350, leaving behind a kingdom on its knees due to the Black Death 
and the loss of lands to the English. Before Cressy, Philip's rule of France had been quite positive with some land gains, but in general it was overshadowed by the monumental loss to the English. Edward's victory at Cressy may have done a lot to mould his own opinion of himself and he enjoyed the ceremony of knightly endeavour. He would spend more time in the pageantry of tournaments where knights would have the opportunity to demonstrate their skill in the spirit of competition. His best knights would be inducted into the Order of the Garter and on a field with the romance of English folklore. Edward became the caricature of a medieval king with his glorious aim to win the crown of France, something that, despite his brave efforts, was beyond his reach. Edward had a son that he could be proud of in Edward the Black Prince. Whether the younger Edward would have had the ability to be an effective king would remain unproven due to his untimely death from dysentery before the death of his father. The Black Prince was certainly a great military leader, scoring a victory at Poitiers and capturing the French King John II, son and successor of Philip VI. King Edward III had surrendered his claim to the throne of France after officially receiving Aquitaine in southern France through the Treaty of Calais in 1360, a ratification of the Treaty of Bretigny from the earlier in the year. Edward still had the spirit for the fight in his later years, but his activity was ineffective, especially in comparison to his younger and energetic sons, Edward the Black Prince and John of Gaunt. In his final years, he would watch helplessly as parliamentary issues weakened the English kingdom's decisiveness, and the death of his own son, Edward the Black Prince, undoubtedly had a toll on the old king, who himself died in the following year. 1377. Thank you very much everyone for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Cressy. Really important battle that wasn't it in terms of setting up the whole uh, the whole theatre for the Hundred Years War between England and France and uh, we could have easily expected all of that to not have happened, uh, but it was thanks to King Edward III that he was uh, he was brave enough to take on the French, and um, you know he was successful. Where like King John tried to do the same, but he wasn't successful. So it wasn't necessarily that King John wasn't brave enough to do it. But Edward was capable of doing it. So a uh, great victory and a real. Uh, door opener for the uh, for the stories of the Hundred Years War. Now, if you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support it, then you may be pleased to know that you can. Uh, we have a Patreon page by which you can sign up, uh, make monthly contributions and obtain rewards for your kindness. The easiest way to find the link is to go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com uh, website and click on the Patreon link. The Ancient World Cup. It's quarter-final time in the Ancient World Cup. We started out with 64 teams, and by a process of elimination, which was uh, done by you good people, by your votes, we have come down to our final eight, and today was the third quarter-final. Now, we've been voting all week on Facebook, on the unofficial Facebook fan group, on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, the match this week was between the Romans and the Anglo-Saxons. So let's uh, let's have a look at um, what you were voting for this week, who you voted for and why. Brenda West, a long-time friend of the show, uh, has written uh, that she vote for she voted for the Romans after much hesitation because they had such a worldwide and lasting legacy. And uh, Robin Luttrell um, uh, told us on the History of the World podcast unofficial Facebook fan group um, in the chat room there that the Anglo-Saxons, he voted for them because of their ever presence in our language and culture. This could also be said about the Romans as well. But Anglo-Saxons won, 
the coin toss. So, um, yeah, of course, you can be involved in that chat as well. If you want to come and chat about history on the Facebook uh, fan group with other like-minded history fanatics, just come to the unofficial uh, History of the World podcast Facebook fan group and uh, and just go to the chat section there and come and join in. Come and join in, have a chat with us all about history. Um, the uh, getting back to business, of course, it, this was about the history of the world podcasts, ancient World Cup match between the Romans and the Anglo Saxons. I'm pleased to tell you that 83 votes uh, took place um, for that um, for that matchup, and the winners going through to the second semi final. Uh, will be with 72% of the votes. Who else would it have been? Of course, it was the Romans. Uh, so we finally say goodbye to the Anglo-Saxons with just 28% of the vote. It was the most one-sided quarterfinal we've had so far. Um, the Romans go through uh, to join the Macedonians and the ancient Egyptians in the semi-finals. That means that we've just got one more semi-final place to work out and that will be coming up next week now if you want to get involved just go to the history of the world podcast facebook page the unofficial facebook fan group instagram and twitter from monday and you can cast your votes for who you want to go through from the fourth quarter final and it's between the athenians and the achaemenid persians those great rivals uh, of each other during the uh, the 5th century BCE, those those great wars, the, the Greco-Persian wars. So um, uh, just go along on from Monday and vote. The Athenians, of course, uh, champions of the earliest forms of democracy and the Achaemenid Persians, really the very first Persian Empire. So voting starts from Monday and make sure you cast your vote. Listener messages and reviews. I am guilty of neglecting certain forums um, on the History of the World podcast like feedback that I get from, from you guys. So I, I apologise for that. Um, I'm, um, I'm not always very good. And there's a lot of places that I get messages from. So I'm going to go over to the Facebook page and, uh, and have a look at the messages that I received there. Uh, Jaw Webb uh, wrote in and said, Hi, I've just recently started listening to your podcast. I love it. Easy to follow. Can I please join your Facebook group? Of course, everyone can join the Facebook group. It's open to all. Uh, Liam O'Gormley has written in and put, um, Hey, hey, fan of the show here. Still early days in Neolithic Egypt, but I'm in for the long haul. I came for European and world history. Uh, but you started a lot further back than I intended. It's a lot of homework, but it was necessary, though. This is actually the second time of writing this for technical reasons. I had a lengthy diatribe bemoaning the ed American education system and my biased education that you're probably better off missing. But I still wanted to reach out because I really appreciate what you've made and I wanted to thank you. I hadn't realised the massive gaps in my history narrative and you've helped me rekindle an interest in history, but even more than that, an internalisation of history for me. What I learned of prehistory was part of the American history myth. And now that I know that that concept and have that lens, it's provided a really interesting contrast for the narrative you provide. I love the emphasis on history, progress, invention, migration, even inter-hominin relations uh, as a gradual process, an ebb and tide, progression with regression, branches that didn't make it, challenges and pressures that shaped us. It's so different from the inevitable rise narrative, but so much more relatable. Geologic time is so vast i felt like it was being taught to me as a series of check marks to be ticked but your narrative helped make it palatable uh, palpable i'm sorry uh make it relevant a foundation myth backed by science global in scope honest flawed vibrant mysterious i don't think i fully understand yet how necessary and lacking that's been for me i've begun to slow down your series to give myself more, more time to process and imagine to get uh, distracted, relaxed and pursue parallel topics. The History of Chemistry podcast 
frames prehistory before metallurgy as two chemical processes, fire and fermentation. I think you dig it could be worth a companion episode also. Maillard reactions and how they might act as a driver of evolution and mechanism of enforcing the diet necessary for encephalization. Anyway, he breezed past the Calcolithic into the Bronze and Iron Age, so then I got distracted by the Bronze Age collapse, which I don't think I'd ever heard of, and various Wikipedia hopping got me to the Neolithic Wikipedia pages to clarify some things. The original impulse that got me to write to you two essays ago was that I almost made an account uh, to quibble with the wiki page in the fifth millennium because I have relevant opinions about prehistory, which I thought was pretty cool. It claimed a single source for pig domestication and blamed the Neolithic revolution for narrowing diet and worsening variety without even mentioning the lower dryas. I was appalled at Wikipedia, especially for the last part, even though, and I'm delighted at the fact that I have opinions. I knew almost none of these things before your podcasts, which seems crazy, especially to have never heard the words lower dryas or the imposter selective breeding of cereal crops. I love that. Anyway, love the show. Uh, first podcast I've really gotten into, but I can already tell I'll be uh, a long-time listener. Cheers to another 8,000-odd years with you in the history of the world. Well, thank you, Liam. That that was a very, very well thought out and written uh, uh, message. So thank you. We're clearly very deep thinking about everything that's, uh, that's being presented. And um, I think you have a, an insatiable thirst for knowledge um and uh, a very a very good style of writing as well i think liam it's a very well written message so thank you uh caitlin hay has written in and said uh, just started your podcast learning a lot it's very relaxing and great to listen to thank you so much for how you present the information and for making history interesting uh thanks for writing in caitlin and Joseph M. Halley has written in and said, Hi Chris, I just discovered you about a month or so ago on Spotify and I've just finished volume one about prehistory. Fascinating stuff and it's wonderful to hear you progress as a podcast presenter over the few weeks I've been listening anyway. I'm just writing to say thank you for being such a fabulous storyteller. I'm certainly learning quite a bit. Thank you so much, Joseph. Um, Zolly has written an email uh, to me and said I've been interested in history mainly about the past 500 years before hearing about you but ever since I discovered your podcast it made me obsessed with all of history although I'm only at episode 10 of the first volume I can already feel how much work energy and resource you're putting into this you're the best all-in-one source and an absolute expert. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Zolly. Very complimentary email. I appreciate that. Very nice. Um, Lynn Dowling, who's uh, also a long-time uh, listener to the podcast, a, a close friend of the podcast, um, has sent um, sent a PDF in to me, which I hope she uh, is able to share on the, on the media pages with you. Um, just about uh, discoveries through different uh, scientific technologies within the Guatemalan jungle. Um, and we're discovering more and more sort of Mayan uh, or Mayan remains, I should say. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it's, it's quite interesting that like this technology is no doubt in my mind that this jungle is full of surprises uh, that date from... Uh, sort of pre-Columbian cultures and um, I'm sure that we're going to be discovering more and more as, as time goes by and as science and technology allows. Uh, she's also written, I also want to mention a terrific book I just finished, Over the Edge of the World, an account of Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. Your podcasts about medieval Spain were a perfect setup for that event in history. Finally, Please do not apologise when you need to record unscripted episodes. Some of us who binge listened during the pandemic and finally caught up get very anxious when we fall behind again, even by one or two episodes. Your unscripted episodes help us to catch up again without guilt. Besides, they are often great fun. Um, and uh, P.S. Am I imagining it or are you making more of a concerted effort to reprise the events in history that led up to a particular podcast? These are often facts that we have encountered before in previous podcasts, but it really helps to have the review. You present so much information in each podcast, it's hard to absorb it all. The reviews 
are really terrific. Well, thank you, Lynn. It's nice that you've validated uh, what I do at the end of the show. It's not for everybody. Some people just want to move on to the next episode, but I'm glad that there are those of you out there. And I can see that some of you do stick around for this for this part of the podcast episode. And I really appreciate it because I do appreciate people who write in and tell me that they're enjoying the podcast. So, yes, uh, obviously, I'm, the whole project, the History of the World podcast, I want to just uh, make sure that there's very little in the way of cracks in the knowledge, and especially when talking about medieval Europe. You could go on and on and on talking about the various nations and the various battles. Um, you've got to condense it down at some point. So, But when we get to the end of this little series of European podcast episodes, so uh, we'll talk about the Teutonic Knights and a little bit about the, 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 the conflicts in Central Europe, uh, before we summarise Europe as a whole and hopefully some of the things that we maybe didn't mention uh, during our episodes, um, we will just cover them in the review episodes. So... Uh, yes, we do like to go over things uh, over and over again, but sometimes they're hugely relevant. So uh, I think it is necessary and it, and, it's, and it makes it quite comprehensive, hopefully. But um, of course, I'm interested in your opinion. So if you do have an opinion about uh, what Lynn said uh, or what I've said in response or, or anything at all, just write in and let me know. Anyway, that's it for another week. Next week, of course... Uh, where do we go from the Battle of Cressy? Of course, we've got to go to the next century. Uh, the flip side, the Battle of Agincourt is next week. So that's a, a really fascinating episode in history, the Battle of Agincourt next week. Join me then. Until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.